invite you to join me in Mark's Gospel, uh, chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I just want to say a big thank you to all of the, those of you who have prayed for me this last week. I spent uh, all of last week kind of near Lloyd at a Bible camp. Uh, it was uh, an evangelism camp, so most of the, uh, it was junior high, ages 11 to 14. Most of them there were coming from uh, more or less unchurched backgrounds, and I just spent the whole week preaching the gospel, uh, which was awesome, and uh, awesome to see just how God works through his word being preached and the gospel being declared. So thank you for your prayers, and it's great to be back here this morning. I want to ask you to uh, just think with me for a moment about the following statement that I'm going to read, and, and just ask, what do you think of it? This was originally made to American Christians uh, by a well-known writer, is this writer's perspective, as, as I read his thoughts, would you agree? Is what he's saying fair? And could it be said here in Canada as well? Here's the statement. Uh, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus a Jesus who doesn't mind materialism and would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. That statement's thought-provoking to say the least. I mean, I think that we have to grapple with the, the sort of things being said there. Is that true? Well, at a minimum, I, I think it would be fair to say that many people have a faulty view of the Christian life and what it is and what it entails and what it should look like. And you could be one of them. I could be one of them. In fact, probably every single one of us is at least to some degree. Our text today portrays for us what the Christian life should be and what it should look like and what it should involve. Jesus has opened up his disciples' eyes to see that he is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. But in a sense, they're still like the man that we saw previously in this chapter back in verse 22, the man from Bethsaida who Jesus opened his eyes and he, he saw uh, men walking as if they were trees. It's like he could see, but he, he still wasn't fully seeing. And that's the disciples. They don't yet grasp what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. Their views are faulty. And their faulty views of Jesus result in a faulty view of the Christian life and what it should look like and what following Jesus really means. <clears throat> From this point on in, in Mark's gospel, it's going to become apparent that Jesus is going somewhere physically. He's on his road, uh, on the way to a certain destination that will later be revealed, not yet, but it will later be revealed as Jerusalem. And what Jesus expects is that his followers walk that road with him. That where he goes, he wants them to be right there behind him. And that is true of every follower or disciple of Jesus. You must follow in the footsteps of Jesus. His path must become your path, whatever that path may be. Follow along as I read in chapter 8, uh, beginning of verse 31, and I'll read down through the first verse of chapter 9. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. 
But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. <clears throat> this passage lays out for us two absolute necessities that Jesus reveals to his followers. And we want to work our way through those this morning. The first absolute necessity that Jesus puts on the table is this, that it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to walk a road, we might say, of humble descent. For him to walk a, a, a road uh, on a decline, descending somewhere. The work of Christ can be summarized in, in two main stages. Uh, the, f- the first stage would be his humiliation, downward, followed by his exaltation, upward. You might think of the work of Christ as several downward steps, starting with, with him uh, an eternity past in heaven and humbling himself, and coming here to earth, and ultimately dying, and then rising from the grave, and ascending up into heaven, and sitting down at the Father's right hand. Jesus is now teaching his disciples that it is absolutely necessary for him to walk that first part of the road, this road of humble descent downward, all the way to the grave. Humiliation. Christ's road had no alternative routes. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them. The idea is what he's about to share with them. This is new revelation for them. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Uh, There's a powerful little word in the middle of that, that verse. It's the word translated must which could also be translated and typically is uh, from the original as uh, it is necessary. It's the most simple way to translate that word typically. It is necessary. Jesus taught that he must walk the road described in verse 31. He is saying this is absolutely necessary. It must be this way. Uh, The most isolated communities in the Northwest Territories are accessible uh, only by scheduled and chartered flights for most of the year. In other words, there are, there are parts of Canada here that are fly-in only. If you want to go there, you have to fly. That's the only way in. There's no list of uh, travel alternatives. You could go by boat or train or car. You ever read Go Dog Go? Yeah, sorry. I, our kids are young. <laughs> I couldn't help myself there. Um, Jesus is saying, you, you can't do that. There's only one way in. There's only one route. Christ's road had no alternative routes. There was only one way to do what needed to be done. And Christ's road consisted of various elements. Like what? Well, he lays it out. This road that I'm going to walk includes suffering, rejection, and death. 
Suffering. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Suffering? Really? I mean, this is a huge shock to these men. A suffering Messiah? Most people, including the the disciples, understood the Messiah to be uh, some kind of political conqueror. Some type of military conqueror. I mean, he was going to sit on David's throne yet again and rule and reign. And so people are, are thinking about the Messiah as he, he's going to take over and dominate Rome. And now he's saying he's going to suffer and rejection and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Uh, those three groups made up what was known as the Sanhedrin or the Jewish high court. Jesus would be tried and he would officially be rejected by his own people. None of this is making any sense. And finally, death and must be killed. Jesus is teaching his disciples that that is absolutely necessary, that it must be that way. I must die. The disciples saw that Jesus was the Messiah. They got that. I mean, Peter's just made this great confession. You are the Christ. But they have no framework for what that would actually entail. And this is perplexing because Jesus is the king. But what's described is not what kings do. As one person said, a king who dies is not what's expected. It's not what's wanted. It is, however, exactly what they desperately needed. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is what's needed. It must be this way. The road that Jesus needed to walk was a road of humiliation. Ironically, though, it would culminate in exaltation. He would go all the way from heavenly glory all the way down to the grave and back up again. He says, and and must, after three days, rise again. But it seems at least like the disciples, they may have not even heard that. It's what? Suffering? Rejection? Death? Huh? Huh? And Jesus is mentioning resurrection. They're not even checked in at that point. They're so stunned by the first three elements. But what was at the end of that long road of suffering and pain and humiliation was actually exaltation and glory. And verse 32 tells us that as Jesus spoke about all of this, he spoke plainly. In other words, Jesus spoke with confidence. He's not back and forth on this one. No, this, this is how it's going to be. And he spoke with clarity. It will be like this, and it will be like this, and it will be like this. He was very clear about the road that he needed to walk. Crystal clear. Jesus was saying, it will be like this. In fact, it must be like this. And the disciples understand what he's saying. They may not get it. They they may not agree. But what he's putting on the table, they're hearing him loud and clear. And that becomes obvious by how Peter responds. But why must it be like this? Well, Christ's road was preordained by God. This is God the Father's plan. And though it hasn't been explicitly stated just yet in the text, Jesus is about to make clear this has been God's plan. God is the one who mapped this road of humiliation out, even though it defies human logic. Well, Peter, he doesn't approve. He is not okay with what Jesus is talking about. In fact, it seems like Peter has a far, far better plan about how Jesus could be the Messiah. And so he takes Jesus aside for a moment and he seriously, seriously rebukes him. And then Jesus comes back and rebukes Peter in a very strong way. Look at verses 32 and 33. 
And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa. I mean, that if there was ever a rebuke, I mean, that is it. He just called Peter Satan. Peter was functioning just like Satan had when Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. And Satan essentially came to Jesus and said, you know, Jesus, you could have this kingdom without the cross. And that's Peter right here, just like Satan. Hey, how about, how about you become the, this great conquering king? And I, this, I've got a whole plan for how this could work. There doesn't need to be any suffering. There doesn't need to be any cross. Just triumph and glory and exaltation and dominion. Jesus tells Peter, step aside. He will not be deterred by anyone or anything because he is going to walk in obedience to God the Father and the the plan that God the Father has mapped out. This road of descent from heavenly glory all the way to the grave. And he tells Peter, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. There is God's way And this is it. And there is man's way. And Christ's road was preordained by God. It was necessary for him to walk it. And I think we can all sit here today and say, praise God he did. Imagine that you inherit an old house from a distant relative, maybe someone you hardly know. You've never even seen this place, but you find out that you've just come into an inheritance, this house. And upon arrival, you notice, well, you know, it doesn't look that greatest from the outside. It could certainly new, use a new roof. Um, it could use some paint, that sort of thing. And so you call up a contractor for him to take a better look, and you're hoping he's just going to worry about some exterior things. Paint, touch up the exterior. And he shows up, and within a few moments when he examines the house, he says, oh, no, like, that is not what this place needs. The job that needs done here is much bigger than you realize. Uh, there's, in fact, there's no even point in painting this house right now. This house literally needs stripped down to the studs. It needs raised up on its foundation and a new foundation poured. You either need to torch this place and light it on fire or you can save it at great, great cost. I recognize that this is a very broken analogy, but maybe it will help put things in some kind of perspective for you the disciples thought that the messiah had come to do something political the crowds seemed to have thought that jesus had come to do something political liberate the jewish people from roman domination paint the house fix this horrible problem that we have when in reality jesus mission was was not first and foremost political though he certainly is a king and he certainly has a throne Jesus' mission was much, much larger. We could even say it was cosmic. His mission is radical and expensive, and you can imagine how shocking it must have been when they're thinking that he's going to take over and rule over Rome, and then he starts mentioning Roman crosses that people should expect if they follow him to possibly even die on. Jesus is saying that it is absolutely necessary for me to walk this road of humble descent. 
He came to deal with a much bigger problem than Rome. Jesus came to deal with the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God over sin. He's on a road to Jerusalem to do what? Well, that hasn't all been revealed in all the specific details, but he's going there to die. To sacrifice his life in order to satisfy God's holy, pure, perfect, eternal wrath over sin. And to do that as a substitute for sinners. Jesus is saying to these people, you need me to do something far more significant for you than what you have in mind. He is going to lay down his life as a substitute for sinful people in order to secure eternal peace between God and man. He's telling these people, your greatest need is bigger than you realize, and it must be this way. That was Christ's mission. And it was absolutely necessary for Jesus to walk this road in order for salvation to be achieved. There's no alternative route. Do you realize that you need Jesus for something? And it's not to give you this really rosy, great, comfortable life where everything's in in perfect order or anything like that. Your greatest need is for more than a God who just makes everything nice and gives you a wonderful life. You need a Savior. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell these men. You need me to save you. It must be that way. There's no alternative route. And Jesus walked this road for you eternally so that you could have eternal life and, and, and God could pour out his wrath on Christ in your place so that your sins could be paid for as he hung there on the cross as your substitute, as he lived as your substitute. And way back at the beginning of Mark, Jesus keeps telling people, repent and believe this good news. Repent and believe, repent and believe. But as the next verses will reveal for us, what Jesus did was not just for you and me eternally so that we could be saved from the wrath of God and have eternal life, but what he did in this road that he walked is for every single one of us every single day, presently. Something, an an example for us to follow, an example we must follow. A disciple is a follower and Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Messiah The disciples have confessed, you are the Messiah. But to confess that Jesus is the Messiah and be his follower is to confess what your own road must be. One writer put it this way, a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. When believers confess who Jesus is, they also inevitably confess what they must become. If he is the Messiah, on his terms, and you confess him as such, then you're saying, okay, here's who he is and here's his road and I'm his follower, which means if he is this, then I must be that too. The road that he walks, I must walk that same road. And that takes us to the second absolute necessity that's revealed by Jesus in this text. Not only is it absolutely necessary for Jesus to walk this road of humble descent, it's absolutely necessary for you to walk a road, the same road of humble descent. Where Jesus walked, you must walk. And that's what disciples or followers of Jesus do. They walk the same road as their master. And like Jesus, you will not find an alternative route. 
Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Uh, before we get into this section, I think it, it's helpful to, to think about discipleship and what it is and what Jesus is referring to. Uh, when, when discipleship is used in the Bible, it's often referring to the, like the moment a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, the moment they, they trust Christ and are saved. But discipleship also refers to like this whole ongoing life and, and way of living following Jesus. And what we're going to see next kind of encapsulates both of those ideas. But Jesus here, he calls the, the disciples, the 12, and the crowd all to hear the exact same message. Many of these people in the crowd, they have not yet begun to follow him as their savior. They're not Christians. They've just been there for the miracles and all this and that. The disciples, on the other hand, they have decided to follow him, but they're still very much learning what that means. And Jesus tells both groups, the crowd and his disciples, to come hear the same message. Take up your cross and follow me. And I think it's worth just pointing out that uh, in calling both of these groups, he's calling everybody, if you want to be my disciple, here's what it looks like. Meaning this, there's not an intense route for the spiritually elite like the 12 apostles. I mean, we might think, wow, like those guys are way up here and so they would follow Jesus like this. And then there's like everybody else like us in the crowds and we just kind of follow him our own way. There's not an intense route for the spiritually elite like the 12 and then a bunch of secondary routes for everybody else. In fact, Jesus completely obliterates the idea of any form of like a two-tier Christianity. There's no distinction between Christian and then like Christian light. There are not two ways to follow Jesus. There's not the zealous and hardcore way and then the half-hearted way where I'm kind of there and I'm kind of not. There is only one way and there is only one route for every single Christian. He calls everybody together. If you want to follow me, here's the road. And it is this route, this road of humble descent. And if you are a Christian, this is your road. If you think, well, I, I might want to be a Christian, this is your road. The so-called Christian life that many people are living is not the Christian life at all. And if you want to walk this road behind Jesus and follow him, you will need to humble yourself. Christ humbled himself, and if you're going to follow him, you have to do the same. What does that mean? Well, negatively speaking, Put it in negative terms, you must deny yourself. Look at verse 34 again. And by the way, before we look at this verse, just to be clear, none of these things are what actually save a person. But this is what the Christian life looks like. This is what following Jesus looks like. Verse 34, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself. Before a person comes to Christ, his whole life is essentially uh, centering around himself, right? He's right at the very center of his life. And when Jesus says, uh, let him deny himself, he's speaking of a radical, fundamental change in life's orientation. It's no longer my whole life is centered around me. 
Previously, life was oriented towards self. And now Jesus speaks of a life that's oriented outward, away from self, towards him and towards others. Jesus calls you actually to deny the whole principle of self. Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, if you want to follow in my wake, it will take you somewhere and it will not take you towards self-actualization. Following Jesus means turning from your self-focused, selfish ways and forgetting about you. If, if you want to be my disciple, your life can't be about you anymore. Being willing to give up things that you might want in life. Well, I had these dreams for all of how I wanted my life to look like. Being willing to refuse to pay attention to what your desires are saying and, and refuse to think about your own selfish wants and give up all your claims on your life. One person described it as turning away from the idolatry of self-centeredness and every attempt to orient one's life by the dictates of self-interest. And again, just to be clear, God is not saying that, well, if you do that, you will be my disciple in the sense of like you will earn that. No, he's saying here's what it looks like when a person is my disciple. Before a person becomes a Christian, we might describe him as being in the driver's seat of his life. He, he's got the wheel. He's got the gas pedal. He's got the brake. He can turn. He can go forward. He can go backward. He's in the driver's seat, in a sense, with his hands on the wheel. He's the captain of his own life. And Jesus says, if you want to follow me, here's what that means. It means all of that changes. You are no longer the center of your life. If you are following behind me, your life will not be about you. You must deny yourself. And positively speaking, you must take up your cross. Look at verse 34 again. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross <coughs> and follow me. Well, we were like here for Roman domination. This is going to be great. And now you're describing us under, even, even more so under the thumb of Rome, dying on Roman crosses? When Jesus says that a person must take up his cross, I, I think here in this passage it really is a literal call to be willing to die for the sake of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's hard for us to digest here in North America. But it has become the reality for many of Jesus' disciples all throughout the ages, starting with the twelve. Some of them were martyred. And, and just broadening out a little bit from there, Mark's audience, the people uh, who this book was originally penned for and to, many of them died as martyrs. And Christians all around the globe since. Jesus is saying that following me will cost you. And when Jesus said yes to the cross, he was saying yes to God's plan for his life. In summary, denying yourself and taking up your cross essentially means saying no to self and yes to God no matter what it costs. Okay, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, if I'm going to be a Christian, what would that look like? No to self and yes to God's plan. The Lord calls you to do this immediately, right away and perpetually. Luke 9.23 includes the word daily. Take up your cross daily, he says, and follow me. And generally speaking, what's being described here is this idea that you must devote your life to Jesus. Uh, I read these verses and I, I'm struck by the fact of, okay, God, what do you want from me? What, what, what do you want me to do for you? 
What sacrifices do you want me to make for you? How do I live this this life that you're talking about? But let's not forget what's at the very heart of this life. It's devotion to a person. Jesus uses the language of following me, devotion to me. It's relational. Jesus expects devotion to himself personally. And as we'll see in a moment, ultimately one day people will be judged on how they respond to him personally. Do they follow him or do they reject him? Christianity first and foremost is relational. And if you're asking, okay, if God wants me to live this kind of life, what does it look like? It looks like an intense relationship with Jesus where you spend time with him and you walk with him and you fellowship with him and you cultivate a relationship with him. Jesus is saying, that's the road. That's the life. And it's absolutely necessary for you to walk it. Not to be saved, but like this is, this is what it looks like, though, to follow Jesus. Jesus' path must be your path. And you must devote your life to him. And maybe you sit here, and, and much like Peter, you've got your own plans. Well, like, I want to follow Jesus, but I have a better idea for what that could look like. Or maybe some of you are sitting here today and you frankly need to reorient your entire life not in front of Jesus but behind Jesus. Because right now, like Peter, your entire life is arranged somewhere behind you. Your whole life is oriented there behind you and and you want everything to come your way. And that's just not what this text is saying. Maybe you're saying, Jesus, listen, like I'm going somewhere. And I have these plans, and actually you're part of them. But here's what I have in mind, and here's how I want to live my life, and here's what I want it to look like, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and here's going to be my awesome, wonderful life. You're saying, Jesus, I'm going somewhere, and I want you to follow me, and truthfully, I really do want you with me, because you're like my good luck charm. I want your blessing. And Jesus says, no, that is not the Christian life. Jesus says, I am going somewhere. And I want you and your whole life behind me. I am going to the cross and I want you right there behind me. I think when we hear things like that, it can come with a great sense of hesitation. Well, that sounds like I got a lot to give up. And maybe you're concerned about what you might lose or the cost of if you were to become a Christian or if you were to actually live your Christian life out like this. You're concerned about what you might lose or the cost or what you might have to give up or something else. And if that's you, there's something Jesus wants you to hear, just like he wanted these people to hear. And it's this, you will never regret following Jesus down this road. And Jesus gives you his word on that. And it's then accompanied by at least four reasons, robust reasons to back it up. His first reason is because of what we might call the paradox of life. Look at verse 35. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I mean, this is a monumental paradox. Jesus is saying you can cherish this earthly life. 
and, and you can seek to preserve it and go, this will be my life and I will live this way and I will have that. And Jesus isn't going to fit in that. You can cherish your earthly life and live it for yourself and yet the person who does that is actually the one who ultimately loses his life in eternity. And on the flip side of that, Jesus says that the person who lets go of his earthly life, Jesus, you are the Christ. And I'm going to follow you. You're going to be my Savior and my Lord and I'm going to devote my life to you. That person may let go of a lot of things, but they gain eternal life. And Jesus backs it up with another reason why a person would never regret it, and that's because of the value of the soul. Look at verses 36 and 37. Jesus continues, For what does it profit a man (coughs) to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And the answer to both of those questions is obviously nothing. If you live your best life now and you spend eternity in hell, then what have you gained? You've gained nothing. There's no profit in that. Jesus says if you lose your soul, you have gained nothing. And I would actually submit to you that you have one and only one lasting possession. Just one thing that you possess, and that is your soul. Uh, listen to these words. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7. It says this, we brought nothing into the world and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Consider Job's words in Job 1.21. He said, naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return to the grave. You didn't bring anything here. You're not taking anything out. You have one and only one lasting possession and it is your soul. And Jesus reminds all of us here that you cannot put a price tag on the soul. Some of you sit here and your entire life is wrapped up in things that will not transcend the grave. And meanwhile, and that's what Jesus is telling these people, and meanwhile your soul is destined for hell. And it's almost like Jesus is pushing this way and he's pushing that way. You're living a great life. So what? You've made a ton of money. Who cares? You've achieved all kinds of great things. Does it really even matter? You've succeeded. Have you? Really? Look at verses 36 and 37 again. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? The Bible is quite clear that you are going to die someday. We all are. And that could be 70 years from now or it could be today. And the question that Jesus is bringing up is, okay, what about your soul? And the Lord's advice here is, why don't you renounce it all? Renounce the world, all that it has to offer, and you come follow me. Give your life to me. Following Jesus will cost you something, sure, but it will be worth it. And Jesus, he's just going to keep piling up these massive reasons why you'll never regret giving your life to Christ and following him. And the third reason is this, because of the last judgment. Look at verse 38. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me 
And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man, that's Jesus, also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One day Christ is going to return. After, after that time of, of humiliation uh, culminating in death, he rises again. He ascends into heaven. He sits down at the right hand of God and he returns in glory. One day Christ will do that. And when he does, he will judge the earth. The Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and after that the judgment. And everyone must stand before him, including you, including me. And at the last judgment, Jesus is saying, you will not regret following me on that day. If you don't follow Jesus now (laughs) in this life, you should not expect him to embrace you as his own in the last judgment. If you're ashamed of him now, you're like, no, I'm not really interested in him. And then you you think all of a sudden that last judgment's going to come and he's going to be like, oh yeah, we're great. On that day, you should expect him to unleash his eternal wrath on you. But Jesus wants to save you from that. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, follow me. It may cost you everything, but you will gain everything. You can't have your cake and eat it too and and basically say, Jesus, I don't want you now. I don't want you today, but I want you on that day of judgment. It's like this, Jesus, I need you now. I need saved today from my sin. And here's my life. It's yours today. And he he gives us one fourth reason, and that is because of the presence of the kingdom and the idea that it's already here. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Jesus is saying the kingdom, it's already here. And that's how the book of Mark started. There's a bit of debate about what Jesus is referring to there in verse 1. What does he have in mind when he uses the language that he uses? And it it seems that it's most likely that he's referring to what immediately follows in verse 2 in the gospel of Mark, the, the transfiguration. In the verses to come, Jesus is going to take a few of his disciples up on a mountain and he is going to take the veil off, so to speak, for these men. And they are going to see him in his kingly, unveiled glory. I think Jesus is saying the kingdom is already here. The kingdom has already come. And yes, it it will continue to come and be more fully realized. But it's here His victory and triumph are sure. He is Lord. You will never regret following Jesus down this road. He is the king here and now today. But you will regret the choice to reject him, the choice not to follow him. I think it's interesting that discipleship and the the entirety of the Christian life, it's not oriented based on today. It's oriented based on tomorrow. It's end time oriented. Why would someone be willing to suffer like this? Why would someone be willing to, to renounce everything? Why would some, some people, as some have already done, give their lives for Christ and the gospel? Because there's something better in the end. It is absolutely necessary for you to walk this road of humble descent. It is the Christian life. You cannot save yourself. 
doing these things will not save you, so to speak. Only Jesus can do that. But here is the life that he calls you to. And it's absolutely necessary for every Christian to walk it. I want to just end by asking some x-ray type of questions. What about your soul? Where will your soul spend eternity? And how confident are you of its destination? And maybe another really hard question. You say that you are a Christian. You say that I am a follower of Jesus and I want to ask you point blank and and, and even in a bit of a piercing way, but are you really? You think that just because you show up at church here and there and you've got Jesus somewhere in your life that you're actually a follower of Jesus? Possibly. But Jesus is saying, here's what my followers look like. And here's what my followers do. And if you think you just sort of got your, 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 your fire insurance here and you don't need me, that is not the Christian life. You say you are a Christian, but are you really? Because the Christian life is a life of devotion where Jesus is king and where Jesus is Lord and where he's followed. And where self is set aside where God is obeyed and where the gospel rules and reigns. And all of us are, are going to struggle. We're not perfect. We have huge problems. But Jesus is saying, big picture, this is what my people look like. They follow me. And I think it's worth every single one of us just wrestling with that. Has my life ever looked like that? Am I actually a follower of Jesus? What does my life look like today? Or is your form of Christianity something that Jesus knows nothing of? Or do you sit there with one foot in the world and, hey, I want to go this direction, and then I've got this other foot where I'm trying to follow Jesus. That's just not what Jesus describes. You can't go this way and that way. You renounce this and you follow me. And are you living a life of wholehearted, relational, all-out devotion to Christ where, Lord, I want to know you. I want to know you. And is following Jesus a side thing or is it the thing? Jesus says, you leave all of that behind and come follow me. You must follow in the footsteps of Jesus. His path must be your path. What I'd like to encourage everyone here to do is, as we wrap up, one, if, if you haven't trusted Christ, you need to, Jesus' advice here, follow it. Jesus, I'm yours. Here's my life. Save me. I want you to be my Lord. And I think many of us come to this text and, and even with a great confidence, you know, even Pastor Nate, when you push me and you challenge me and are you really a Christian? I sit here and I see all my problems, but I still say yes. I am. But this, this text still pushes me in all kinds of very uncomfortable ways. What I want to encourage you to do is slow down. Because what we often do is we hear a message like this and maybe we grab a nugget from it and we get up and we try to take that nugget into our week. And I think actually what all of us need to do is slow down and spend some serious time with these words of Jesus. Trying by God's grace to take inventory of your entire life. Slow down. You get alone with Jesus and these words and you wrestle through them and ask Jesus, is this my life? 
Or maybe, maybe I was living like that, and then all of a sudden, somehow, like, I, I took the steering wheel again, and my life's just become about me. And I'm not living this life of self-denial and taking up my cross. I, this is just not how it is, or it's not that way in this realm. Slow down and linger long over this text. This is not the sermon to, to grab a nugget and walk away, but to really wrestle with it. And I need to do the same. We all do. God, do you have my life? By God's grace, let's strive to do that together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes?